This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Just About Work, where we talk about everything that can have an impact on your career. Today, we're talking with Sarah Schoenhardt, a journalist who's fascinated by the way some young professionals are returning to their hometowns, often to help revitalize their communities. After college and grad school, Sarah headed overseas, finishing her stint as a foreign correspondent with three and a half years in Indonesia as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. About a year ago, she returned to the States, starting out in her hometown of Columbus, Ohio. As she thought about her next phase, Sarah became increasingly interested in how rural areas are dealing with big issues like income inequality, immigration, and drug addiction. While looking at the challenges and opportunities facing smaller American communities, Sarah noticed how some talented young people are heading home to build their careers instead of giving in to the lure of big cities. And that's one of the things that we'll talk about today. Sarah, it sounds like, as a journalist, you have a couple of strong interests that feel like they're at opposite ends of some kind of spectrum. On the one hand, as a young journalist, you headed off to Asia and built yourself a distinguished career as a foreign correspondent. But on the other, now you're back in the States, and you're really interesting these days in what's going on in our rural areas. Today, we're going to talk about some trends you're noticing in America's smaller communities. But before we get to that, we always like to hear career stories here at Jazz About Work. So can you tell us a little bit about your career as a journalist? When did you know? What did you do? And how did you end up where you are today? How did you get started? Um, Sure. Uh, It it always feels a bit strange to talk about my career because I feel like I'm just in the middle of it, (laughs) still trying to figure it out. That's Um, the most fun part. Um, so I, I, uh, actually started out, um, my first job was in Thailand. I was, uh, sent there on a fellowship, um, right out of Ohio university where I studied journalism and it was my first time really being overseas on my own in such a completely foreign country. And I was completely underprepared and, and a lot more afraid than I thought I would be. Um, I almost think that I wouldn't have gone had I known what I was getting into. Well, you were pretty brave to go. Did you go um, after lots of planning and advice? Or, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> so you were pretty brave to just take off and go. The opportunity arose, and it just seemed too good to pass up. Um, and I think that's, in fact, how I've built a lot of my career decisions. Um, some people might frown upon that or look at it as um, you know, poor decision-making. But uh, I, I ended up in this... Um, town outside of Bangkok and was a little trepidatious. I didn't speak the language. Um, I didn't know much about the culture. And I had to really, I was thrown into the deep end. I really had to learn on my own, which in retrospect, I think was the best position to be in because I was forced to learn the language, to make friends in a community where there weren't a lot of other people like me. It wasn't the capital. It wasn't Bangkok. So it wasn't this big metropolitan area. In fact, it was, you know, a smaller town. And 
because of that, I built my own community or I found my own community, which to your earlier point about having interests at opposite ends of the spectrum, I don't know that that they're really all that different in a way. So you started with sort of becoming at home with a small community that was very different than yours, but I bet you saw some similarities. Exactly. And I think the thing that made it all coalesce and make made living in Thailand feel easy was the day, I still remember this so vividly, the day I was able to get a, a spare key to my house cut because it was the first time anything had ever happened easily. Like I'd taken it to the shop and so the person had understood what I was asking for. And I got on my bike and I biked away. And as I was biking home, I thought, okay, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> so... You had great practice at just taking on something you knew nothing about and plunging in. And I think part of it as a journalist is you probably noticed. I mean, that's part of joining a community is noticing, looking around, listening. And as a, as a young journalist, you already had some of those skills. So, so what happened after Thailand? Um, I spent a bit of time in Cambodia, again, kind of on my own, exploring the country. Um, I was doing some work for a publishing company that was creating a magazine um, to focus on tourism to the country. So that, again, was another eye-opening experience. Um, I came back to the U.S. briefly because I realized I wanted more of a academic understanding of the region I'd really come to love. Um, so I, I got a master's degree in international affairs focused on Southeast Asia. And for a time, I thought I might go into development work because I wanted to, to have a greater impact on some of the issues I was seeing as a... Like what kind of issues really grabbed you? You know, socioeconomic issues have always been interesting to me. Communities that are disadvantaged, inequalities. Um, and I think... I, I so often felt that as journalists, we tended to gloss over some of the issues impacting the communities we were covering for good reason. You know, it's it's not to, to blame journalists for doing that. I think we all are struggling and increasingly pressed to cover breaking news. And so we don't have time to really spend with communities. Um, but I felt maybe the better way to impact them would be to get into development or do some kind of work where I'd be having a greater effect. And I realized after studying for some time that I still had kind of a journalist heart, perhaps, or mind. And I, I was very, still very skeptical and, and wanted to continue telling stories rather than um, you know, doing, doing work in the development industry that I wanted to continue being a journalist. So how did you get back to journalism then when you finished your degree? I graduated um, at a very poor time to be looking for a job in 2009. Uh -huh. And opportunities were coming up for me. I, I, my master's degree um, is from Columbia, so I was in New York. Um, so I had opportunities to stay in the city. And I wasn't really ready to go sit behind a desk um, It wasn't journalism related or the things that were coming up weren't journalism related. So I decided just to go back to Southeast Asia. Um, so I bought a ticket and I had a friend who had an open room and I decided I was going to go make a career as a freelancer. Another brave move that was probably really scary but worked out. It did. It 
was very difficult. Um, anyone who's in journalism, I think, understands the risks that freelancers take and the difficulties that they face trying to make money. Um, and I certainly experienced that in Indonesia. Um, you have to hustle and you very few people make lots of money from it. Um, I was always envious of people who could do really well. <laughs> um, but I think the hustle also forced me to get out and find stories where I wasn't competing with the main news outlets. Um, you know, I couldn't cover the stories that Associated Press was covering or the New York Times. And so I had to find other angles or dig deeper and dig into communities that people weren't going to. So community really has been a theme every place you've been, it sounds like. Uh, so you did that, and but at some point you joined up with the Wall Street Journal. Is that right? Right. Um, I One of the things I liked about Indonesia is that there was – there were little – there were very tight-knit communities. Um, there were people who – because I think it drew fewer um, international reporters than maybe Bangkok or Singapore, you had to really want to be there. Um, and and so everyone kind of knew each other and shared information, and the journal was looking for someone to help them um, build up their Southeast Asia blog. At the time, the journal was um, really trying to promote their blogs, and they had an Indonesia language um, Edition, And so they wanted someone to help with that as well. And so I went and talked to their um, bureau chief who was based in Jakarta. Uh, and so I ended up taking on a job with them. So when you were there for the Wall Street Journal, you may have been writing about communities and fascinated by communities, but you were writing for a big market far away. Since you've come back to the States, it sounds like you're interested in communities, but one of the things you and I have talked about, how what we met about, was that we share an interest in community journalism, meaning how can we assure um, our nation that that small communities, rural communities particularly, do have local journalism. Mm -hmm. So what what's the importance of local journalism to you? Why do you think it really matters? Oh, gosh. I mean, I, I think looking at our industry and reflecting on its future in the state of local news and local journalism is a question everyone is trying to figure out right now. Um, for me, I think so much of journalism comes down to narratives and telling stories and being able to position news in a way that it relates to people. And this was something, to your earlier point, that I was – forced to do being an international correspondent reporting about a foreign country to an American audience. How can someone on a train in Chicago or my mother, I often thought of my mom, how can my mom read the story and in any way relate to this woman who lives in a rural part of Indonesia? And, and I think it's very much the same in a way here, um, looking at local communities, looking at local issues and finding ways to tie them into a broader narrative, because I think that's very true. You can find these hyperlocal stories or examples of someone in a town trying to address a you know a drug addiction problem in their village or in their town, and that 
has resonance to a much, much broader story that the U.S. is going through or experiencing right now. Um, I think, you know, I think local journalism means journalism that is told by someone who knows their community and who is embedded in that community. Um, Often that's someone who's from there. But I don't think that precludes people from outside also telling those stories. I think it just takes someone who's dedicated to knowing what that community, what that town, what that county is going through. So right now you're in the middle of a another little experience in local journalism in Rappahannock County, Virginia, as a fellow for the Foothills Forum, which is a nonprofit journalism um, initiative, which is providing additional resources to support the little local paper so that issues um, that might not be covered can be covered. And so you have a 10-week fellowship. You're right in the middle of a little town you've never been before, and you are doing local journalism. Do you find that all of your experience in all kinds of communities just is is relevant in Rappahannock County, Virginia, um, just as it was in the, the other countries you've worked? Does it Does it kind of feel like the same sort of starting out place? Yeah, in some ways. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting. A lot of the same issues crop up. I mean, issues with like, for example, lack of access to broadband, to broadband, right? Um, water quality issues, um, problems with the school system or access to good health care. I mean, broadly, those are things that every place I've ever reported on have raised as issues they're concerned with. Um, you know, you're probably not a stranger to stories about parts of the U.S. being in, you know, uh, more dire situations than parts of the developing world, right? So the issues are often the same. And I think in terms of getting to know the communities and getting people to talk to you. Um, one of the one of the things I think is so tremendously important is building trust, which is very difficult to do in ten weeks. Yes, <laughs> um, especially in places where people don't really want to tell their stories. Um, you know, I found in some ways Indonesians were fairly open to talking to to strangers. Um, I. I often didn't have a hard time accessing people. And whereas in, you know, rural Southeast Ohio, I've had more difficulty because people don't know you and they don't trust you. So I think showing that you have good intentions and that you are trustworthy, that they can open up to you is is a really uh, wonderful thing to achieve, but it takes time and it takes um effort to show people that you do care about hearing their story. You're not just there to kind of swoop in and take it and leave. Well, I know you've spent some time in Ohio and Columbus and southeastern Ohio, and now you're in rural Virginia, but you've also been um, doing some other writing about small communities and rural areas around the country. One of the things I know you're interested in is a new trend, it's not like an overwhelming trend, but it's kind of a counter trend, um, and that is young people who are returning to the um, Midwest or returning to hometowns in rural areas, people who are 
deciding not to go to those big trendy cities, which has been the dominant trend for young people for a long time. Some of them are um, coming back home. What did you call them? Returners? Uh, yeah, that that is, I can't claim um, responsibility for coining that term. That's a, to- a term that comes from a, a book called Hollowing Out the Middle. Um, and it was written um, back in 2009, I believe, um, by um, two people that went to Iowa and spent uh, quite a bit of time there documenting the small town that they were living in. And at the time the book was written, um, they sort of, they dubbed these people who stay, the stayers, the um, seekers, I believe they're called, the people who go away, mm-hmm. and the returners, the people who go away and come back. And there's somewhat of a connotation that if you've gone away and come back, it's because you've failed. You haven't been able to you haven't cut it in a big city or it hasn't appealed to you or there's a reason that brings you back um, that's not always a a positive. Um, And what I've found is that that's not so true. The people that I've met who are quote-unquote returners are people who are choosing to come back often and wanting to make lives in the places they're from or smaller towns that feel more like home to them. Um, And I think it's jumped out to me and fascinated me because in some ways I, I myself am a returner. Um, I think that the trend of looking at smaller towns has started to pop up more in the media. There, there was a book recently released called Our Towns by um, a reporter from The Atlantic called James Fallows, and it's gotten a lot of attention. He's spent um, about five years traveling around the U.S. looking at small towns and seeing what had made them successful um, using them as examples to say America is not in such dire straits. You know, it's not all doom and gloom the way that we think it is or that we're hearing in in these stories out of Washington. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. In a world where impact matters... The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University offers innovative solutions to challenges. It's ranked as the 39th most innovative public service school in the nation, and it's in the top 100 U.S. News and World Report Best Public Affairs Grad Schools. The Voinovich School is a catalyst for regional, state, and national impact in entrepreneurship, energy, and the environment. With 11 full-time faculty members and 60 professional staffers, the Voinovich School partners with nonprofit organizations, governments, and the private sector to solve problems. It's the home of the master's programs in public administration and environmental studies. Students engage in real-world learning and networking to bring their ideas to life. For more information, visit ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School. I was looking around, just looking for some um, demographic information, and I came across some reports from Ellie Mae, that's a company that tracks mortgage information, 
And um, what it was saying is that in recent periods, there's a growing trend for older millennials, maybe people in their late 20s, um, they're, they're starting to buy houses in a way they weren't before. They're starting to buy houses a lot, and many of them are going home or they're going to smaller cities or they're going to places in the Midwest for the simple reason that you can buy a house. One of the places we share in common in our backgrounds is Ohio University's home of Athens, Ohio. And in one of the uh, reports of Ellie Mae's statistics, they said that at that period, Athens, Ohio was the number one a place in the country in terms of the percentage of home closings, which were by millennials. It, uh, it, an amazing, something like 59% of mortgages closed in that period were closed by, by people, um, young people under 30. So that's one reason that people are uh, going home, perhaps. They're going because uh, they can afford to buy a house, and presumably there are other costs. But, but that's not the only reason, because lots of people I've been seeing and you've been seeing, they're, they're not into the buying houses. They're maybe even earlier in their career. What do you think are um, other things that are, that are drawing people to, to go back to their hometowns? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that this seeking trends uh, among millennials is uh, fascinating to me. Um, and don't everything. trust anything you read because there's, it seems like there's facts and I also wondered about that, that study because I think that for some people who've lived in Athens f for a very long time and are not part of the university set, um, I think they might be getting pushed out actually by, by rising home prices. So they're moving away. Anyway, um, I, I think, you know, data is always... Um, interesting. As you mentioned, it's it's hard to track. It's hard to look it at. Is. But certainly affordability is a reason people would want to leave some of these increasingly exorbitant cities like San Francisco or New York. Um, I also think just the constant grind of those cities being forced, you know, the nature of the way that we work has changed, which is part of the reason why you don't necessarily have to live in a city anymore to do a lot of the work that younger generation the younger generation is doing and for a lot of people they don't want to um, I think there's a drive to be in a setting where you are surrounded more by nature you're surrounded by people who are like you by a like-minded community and sometimes that doesn't mean having to live in a city um, I also think that people are finding yes you know it's more affordable to live in a smaller town but that town might not be as bad as people think you know many of these towns have um have some culture to them they have a sense of community community and ownership you know and, and that was what i found a lot in the towns i was visiting the places where i i found people were co either coming back or coming in as young people was because you know they there was a sense that there was potential there. People saw something in these places that they could build on. And a couple, you know, studies have been done that show what small towns really need to thrive. Um, in addition to a list that James Fallows has written, uh, which includes breweries, which I think was somewhat tongue in cheek, but not entirely, um, is broadband access. So being able to work, you know, anywhere 
and some kind of art scene or culture scene, you know, and a, a support for this more creative infrastructure. I think if you have that, people see affordability, they see innovative minds, and you can build on that. Um, and I think once there are a couple of people in a community like that, in a town like that, then in a way you're creating the sort of recipe to build upon and, and to build a town uh, and to improve upon it. And that's I think that's really inspiring to people. Really, it drives them to these places. And it can be um, wonderful how quickly you can have an impact in a small town. My husband and I, as you know, um, have lived many years in Washington, D.C., but have moved to Rappahannock County, Virginia as our full-time residents. And everything is wonderful and exciting, but tough in Washington. It's hard for one person to make much difference. But if you go to a rural area and you see a need and you can join a group or you can start a group or you can make an effort and it's possible for one person to recruit a few other people and in relatively short time you can see yourself having an impact on the community. That's um, that's feels pretty good. It's very rewarding. Um, I think another reason that I've noticed, and I don't know if, if you've seen this, but one problem for entrepreneurial young people, of whom we have a growing number, it feels like, and that's great news, but one problem is getting financing. It's really hard to start a business and many kinds of businesses, and but there are new mechanisms now if you need $10,000 to open your little coffee shop, crowdfunding. There are other ways that, uh, to, to get financing, get support. And again, broadband and social media uh, become so important to this. You can get the word out. You don't have to do it in traditional ways. So that seems like another um, trend that, that might be the, the case. I also think some, some places, some regions... Um some towns are recognizing that in order to build for the future, they need to embrace youth and learning and training. Um, there's an Appalachian Regional Commission report that you know highlights that, and looking at McConnellsville, in fact, um, as is a place that has worked to develop that support, um, support different ideas for the town uh, through training and bringing in younger people. Um, and so I think that the recognition that there needs to be some supportive infrastructure, some way to get funding, um, so that there is an incentive for people to build is starting to happen more and more. There are communities that are really working hard to have, um, the college grads who went off and started their careers return home. In some cases, their programs to do things like helping with, student loans and providing incentives like that or placement and and those kind of things. A another part of it seems to be that unemployment is at a 17-year low, I think. It's very hard in some communities to find skilled, educated workers. And so uh, businesses are working hard sometimes to recruit people to come back. So let me let me get your advice here. For our listeners, um, if someone is thinking about maybe um, 
trying a, a rural area or maybe a smaller city, and a lot of this is happening in, 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 in smaller cities, like people going to Des Moines instead of Chicago or um, our place is much smaller than that. How do you go about networking? How do you go about joining a community? How do you go about getting to know people? You've done it in a lot of ways. What, what advice would you give to people who want to go to maybe a new city and um, become part of it? Um, I don't know how successfully I've done it. Um, I, to your earlier point about the incentives to try and bring people back, I think some of those have worked and some of them haven't, um, in part because often I think people choose the places that they're going to based on how it feels to them. They That place has some characteristics that they really like. Um, so it doesn't necessarily even have to be a job or the right house. I mean, those are certainly things people look for. Um, but I've found in talking to people that often it's this feeling they're looking for. They're looking for a place that feels like home, a place that has, you know, if they're looking for nature, a place that has that in abundance. Mm -hmm. And the thing that seems to solidify their ability to stay there is feeling like they are part of a community, feeling like they have people that they're surrounded by that embrace them and that support them. Um, and that's what kind of keeps them in a place, but also gives them the incentive to build it up to, to your, you know, what you were saying earlier. I think sometimes they don't come with the idea of improving on their communities, but once they're part of it, it just naturally seems to happen. Um, I guess for me, um, I, being an outsider is always hard. And I think intent is really important. Um, someone told me here when I first came to Rappahannock because I was asking about do you have to be a special person to fit in here? Because every, everyone seems to have had some tie to the county. If they're coming back or they're coming in to move here to, you know, to buy a home or to rent a home or whatever, they, something, they have some connection to the county. And I thought, could you do this if you are a complete stranger, if it's a total outsider? And she said, well, you have to show that you want to be here, that you care about the people, you care about the community, and, and prove that through your actions. And people who've been able to do that have managed to really thrive in, in the community. And so I suppose it's the intent that you show to people about why you're here and what it means to be a member of the town or the community that you're in. I love that. Um, I think you're right on the money that intent, whether you're starting a new job or you're starting a new place, your intent to be part of it and to be uh, a contributing member is 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 really important. And of course, a way, no matter what your age or your situation, if you're moving to a new place, look around and see who's doing good work or um, making good music or you know doing things uh, together in some way and join and 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 be part of it. And um, that is uh, that's good advice whether you're starting. Um, right out of school or you're looking at your retirement years. Well, Sarah, thank you very much for your insights. I, I know that um, you do have another phase coming up, another, I'm sure, successful adventure that you um, aren't ready to talk about yet, but um, 
I wish you well in that, and I would like to hear more from you as you continue to observe um, this phenomenon of people moving to smaller cities and rural communities and and sometimes making a difference. Do you have any uh, last advice for people who might be thinking about doing it? Um, Well, perhaps an advice, but I'm always looking to hear people's stories. So if any of your listeners have something they would like to share... um, I would love to hear them. That would be great. And you can um, uh, Google an uh, address, an email address for uh, WOUB and uh, send a message to care of Beverly Jones at WOUB and we'll uh, make sure that it gets to you. Great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Today we've been talking with Sarah Schoenhardt a journalist and an insightful observer of how some talented young professionals are returning to their hometowns and sometimes sharing the challenge of revitalizing their communities. Today's career tip is that there is no perfect place to create your career. You don't have to head off to a trendy big city. Across the country, professionals of all ages are finding that they can create or recreate a fulfilling work life and a real life, back home, or in another small town. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. (laughs) ¶¶